0: Hello and a very warm welcome to the first ever podcast for The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and I'm with TLO editor Dr David Collingridge. Welcome David and we're going to discuss some highlights from the March 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Let's start with a very interesting research article and this is looking at the whole issue of insurance status, health insurance status, ethnicity and cancer risk. Before we talk about the current study in The Lancet Oncology, what have we known about this topic up until now?
1: Several studies to date have suggested that people from ethnic minorities are more likely to be diagnosed with advanced stage cancer. Equally, previous studies reported that health insurance status is an important factor in receiving cancer prevention and screening as well as diagnostic services and treatment. So individuals without insurance, or they're underinsured, tend to have less access to screening, they present with more advanced disease, and they consequently have limited treatment options and poor outcomes. It's also important to acknowledge that while ethnicity and insurance are critical factors, they're not the only factors influencing cancer outcomes. So, for example, socioeconomic status, level of education, residence in a nursing home or in a rural location, distance to the nearest hospital, or biological differences in susceptibility to cancer, and other comorbidities also influence risk. But, ultimately, of course, having the financial capacity to access healthcare is fundamental.
0: Just before we go into the details of the study, can you just remind us as to why early detection is so important? Well, for most types of cancer, early detection
1: is is associated with a better outcome. So, for example, for patients with colon cancer, a diagnosis of a stage 1 cancer is associated with a 5-year disease-specific survival of over 90%. Whereas if a patient's diagnosed at stage 3 survival drops to about 40%. And if the diagnosis is made very late at stage 4 disease, metastatic disease, survival drops below 10%.
0: And also it's important to realise, isn't it, that insurance, health insurance status and ethnicity are not necessarily independent of each other.
1: That's exactly right. There's a lot of data now indicating that uh, patients with cancer from ethnic minorities are more likely to be uninsured or underinsured.
0: So David, the current study, can you just summarise, this is obviously a very large piece of research in the United States, can you just summarise how this study was actually done? Well Michael Halpern and colleagues are all from the American Cancer Society in, in
1: Atlanta, in Georgia, and they identified nearly 4 million patients diagnosed with one of the 12 most common cancers in the US between 1998 and 2004 using the U.S. National Cancer Database. This particular database is a hospital-based registry that includes about 75% of all cancer cases in the States. They then calculated the odds ratios to compare cancer stage diagnosis across different ethnic populations and across the major categories of health insurance in the States. The major categories include, for example, private insurance, which mainly covers working adults less than 65 years of age, Medicare, which is a government-run entitlement for the majority of retired people aged 65 years or older, but also for younger people who have a chronic disability. There's also Medicaid, which is a government-funded scheme for people with low incomes or low-value assets. And
0: finally, of course, there's the category of, of people who have no insurance at all. In terms of the results, they seem pretty clear, don't they? I.e., for the non-white population and for people who are either underinsured or not insured at all, the risk of cancer is increased. Can you put some numbers on that?
1: The results are very, very clear, actually, in this paper. Uninsured or Medicaid-insured patients are significantly more likely to present with advanced stage disease compared with privately insured patients. For example, the odds ratio for a stage 3 or 4 disease at diagnosis for uninsured or Medicaid-insured patients with colon cancer was 2.0 or 1.6, respectively. And the comparable odds ratios for melanoma are higher still at 2.0 and 3.3, respectively. So the data are very clear cut. The data also clearly show that black and Hispanic patients had an increased risk of advanced stage disease at diagnosis compared with white patients. Interestingly, patients in receipt of Medicare had similar odds ratios to those calculated for privately insured patients. So the conclusions are truly limited to just the uninsured, the underinsured, and the ethnic minorities.
0: In terms of the implications of these study findings, David, what what can happen now? Do you think that there's sufficient evidence here to, to really influence policies, if you like, in the way that the American health insurance world is, is set out? Well, this is really interesting
1: and a really quite difficult question, actually. But the results very clearly showed the most prominent odds ratios were associated with cancers that are easily screened. So there's a clear message here about the need for improved access to screening and diagnostic services, which needs to be considered within the context of insurance coverage. But equally, the finding that Medicaid-insured patients did no better than uninsured patients suggests, at least superficially, that giving some help, a safety net, if you will, is not an effective strategy. But what the study doesn't tell us is the proportion of patients who became eligible for Medicaid because of their cancer diagnosis versus those in receipt of Medicaid before their diagnosis, and this confounds the interpretation somewhat. Plus, there are other problems with overinterpreting the Medicaid data. For example, some patients can find it difficult to find health care provider willing to accept Medicaid payments, and other patients can find the process of means testing difficult, and this can influence their long-term eligibility for Medicaid. However, overall, Michael Halpern's study does clearly emphasise a need for effective and affordable insurance, an effective infrastructure for the underinsured and uninsured. Otherwise, about 47 million people in the States will remain marginalised and continue to face a potentially lethal barrier to accessing healthcare.
0: Moving on, David, another interesting study. This is looking at children who have had cancer in childhood being followed up in adulthood, and it's a Dutch study. What kind of proportion of people are we talking about, or children who have cancers, are we talking about who actually need to be followed up in adulthood?
1: It's a very surprisingly high number, actually. 75% of children with cancer will become long-term survivors, and many will experience late effects resulting from their cancer treatment. These effects range from cosmetic complications that might have physical or psychological consequences, to complications from their radiation treatment, uh, neurological sequelae, orthopaedic endocrine deficiencies, infertility, cardiac damage, or second malignancies. In fact, about 10% of childhood cancer survivors die of a late effect within 20 years of their original treatment. So there is a clear need for long-term monitoring.
0: And how generally is is long-term
1: follow-up done? Well, up to now, about 90% of childhood survivors continue to be monitored into adulthood in paediatric clinics. Most long-term follow-up programmes consist of a paediatric oncologist or sometimes another survivor-focused specialist, along with one or more specially trained nurses in collaboration with a network of specialists as required. Most long-term follow-up teams will monitor the patient for cancer recurrence, they will manage any persistent long-term effects of the initial treatment, they will screen for any late effects and any subsequent cancers, they will address psychosocial needs of the family and the patient, and provide counselling and education to optimise health and quality of life. But clearly, though, a paediatric environment is not right for adult assessments, and patients are often lost to follow-up because as an adult they no longer live near the original hospital that they had their treatment and equally other problems may restrict the effectiveness of the current follow-up system. For example many institutions do not have the resources to support long-term follow-up and some oncologists regrettably do not refer their patients to long-term
0: follow-up even if the program exists. So in terms of this study this is looking at a what they call a shared model. Can you just define the the main objectives of, of this Dutch study?
1: Well we're Blaubrook and colleagues from, from the Netherlands decided to investigate the feasibility of, of, as you say, this shared care approach to long-term follow-up. And to do this, they invited a random selection of adult survivors of a childhood clinic who had been treated at that clinic at least five years previously and were not involved in any follow-up programme. And they then assessed them by their own long-term follow-up processes. But one year later, the survivors were asked to see their family doctor, who had been already made aware of the medical history of the patient and given any specific instructions, as necessary, along with specific assessment forms to complete and return to the paediatric clinic. And then finally, two years after this, the survivors returned to the long-term follow-up clinic for another assessment. Now, the main endpoints of the study were to assess the satisfaction of the patients and the family doctors to this shared care concept. It was to assess the number of patients willing to try the scheme in the first place, and also to measure the proportion of family doctors who actually returned data after the first year of assessment.
0: And in terms of results, we see some pretty high satisfaction levels, don't we?
1: Yes, the results were, were very good, actually, in this model. 92% of survivors agreed to participate, 98% of family doctors really wanted to be involved, and 90% of doctors returned the appropriate data to the long-term follow-up clinic. Plus, 88% of survivors and 82% of family doctors were satisfied with the shared care model. What's interesting is in the linked comment that accompanies this paper, written by Kevin Offinger from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York, this commentary suggests the study actually has very few flaws and it clearly demonstrates the shared care model to be a feasible one and would most likely be cost-effective in comparison to the current approach. The challenge now, of course, is to see whether this can be put into practice in large-scale environments and in different countries and in different healthcare systems. In particular, well-funded and adequately designed Phase 3 trials are clearly needed to formally assess
0: whether this method or follow-up can be universally applied. Thank you, David. Yes, you've, that just stops me asking my next question, which was how generalizable the data are, because the, the numbers here are relatively small, and of course we are talking about a Dutch setting, but you've clearly said that, yes, we, we need larger studies, don't we, to try and replicate these encouraging findings. Exactly. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, David, would you just, just briefly remind us of some, some other highlights from uh, the March issue of the Lancet Oncology?
1: Elsewhere in the issue, the leading edge this month, the editorial, reflects on the cases of two patients in the UK who have been denied an opportunity to self-fund an additional chemotherapeutic drug on top of the regimen provided by the UK National Health Service. Now, in essence, the UK Ministry of Health believes patients in the UK should either self-finance their entire treatment or be happy with the options available through the NHS. Now, we argue in this editorial that the approach does not allow sufficient compassion for patients with cancer and it does not give the health service sufficient flexibility to be part of a solution to patients' problems rather than an obstacle. Elsewhere in the issue, Wasaburo Kozumi and colleagues from Japan present data from a Phase 3 trial called SPIRITS. This particular study was designed to assess a new chemotherapy regimen for advanced gastric cancer. This cancer is the second most deadly type worldwide, and highly prevalent in East Asia and Japan. Now, despite numerous trials in this area, median survival is still less than 12 months it really is a terrible disease. Now the SPIRITS trialists investigate the use of cisplatin which is commonly used in this setting in other countries in combination with S1. S1 is an oral drug that comprises Tegafor a prodrug of fluorouracil, and potassium oxonate. The control arm of the trial was S1 alone which is a standard first line treatment in Japan. The results show that for patients in Japan so patients of East Asian descent the median survival can exceed one year, and this is quite a finding.
0: And finally, David, you've got a review. This is looking at paediatric leukemias.
1: Yes, we have a review this month by Chin Hong Pui and Scott Hale from St. Jude's Children's Hospital in the States, who highlight the challenges that still exist for treating paediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia, and in particular the need to eliminate relapse without the use of cranial irradiation, along with the need for more effective treatments for relapsed or refractory CNS disease. They also discuss one of the other areas of great challenge in in treating these diseases and that's how to effectively treat children with cns relapse after a short period of remission or after cranial irradiation
0: and those were some highlights from the march issue of the lancet oncology our first podcast for tlo many thanks david thanks everyone for listening see you next month